Welcome to episode 247 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. My guest today is Kingsmill Bond of the Rocky Mountain Institute. I first interviewed Kingsmill years ago after hearing him on Chris Snelder's The Energy Transition Show podcast. I mean, who doesn't want to make Mr. Bond jokes? Even Chris, even Chris did it. And, you know, uh, but nevertheless, over the years, I've discovered over those many conversations is that Kingsmill thinks very differently about the energy transition. And here's the key point for listeners. He's almost always right. His explanations of the energy transition's progress matches what we've been seeing happening in real life. And today we're going to be talking about a new way to think about capital expenditures and how the International Energy Agency and other orthodox thinkers have got it all wrong. So welcome to the interview, Kingsman. Um, thanks, Malcolm. And I, I should say by way of introduction, uh, I'm sure I'm as often wrong as right. And it's the very nature of looking forward. You can't always be right. So it's very kind of you to say that, but I, I think we should always be paranoid and, and, and scared that we might be getting stuff wrong, but we certainly do our best. Well, fair enough, and and your humility is appreciated. But I have to tell you, you know, over the years, the, the odd um, uh, economist or other analyst has come on uh, my interviews and taken your name in vain, and 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 I didn't have the the tools or the expertise at the time to to defend you. Uh, but I've paid attention to what you've been saying. We've had these many interviews, and and more your framework for understanding the energy transition is a much more useful framework than many of the orthodox thinkers. And now, and one of the things that you do here is you, I wouldn't say you beat up on the International Energy Agency, but this is, this is important because um, in September, I was in Calgary with covering the, the World Petroleum Congress. And and the narrative at that time from Saudi Aramco and from ExxonMobil, the Alberta Premier, Danielle Smith, the entire two, three, four thousand people that were gathered there was that the IEA was wrong and not not, I mean, almost criminally wrong. And and, you know, the OPEC then a couple of weeks later released the World Oil Outlook 2045, where it, they, you know, oil is going to expand for till mid-century, a very different view than the IEA. And so here's the, the interesting thing. On the one hand, on one side, we've got the, the, the OPEC uh, saying that the IEA is completely wrong about the energy transition and defending the status quo. And you're saying that the IEA is wrong because they're too status quo. And I, and I find, I thought that was, so ironic because I've been defending the IEA uh, quite vociferously, and so give us just give us your thoughts on that. Sure, I mean again, I, I think the, the, this analysis we did on capex it's it's, it's quite technical. It's just um, it, it's just really looking at trying to understand better what's happening with capital expenditure. It's certainly not a an, an attack, in fact, on on the IEA because the, their approach to looking at this issue is. It's not an IEA issue, actually. Even the great IRENA, International Renewable Energy Agency, has the same approach or a similar approach. And even BNEP has a similar approach. And, and the sorry, the, to cut to the chase, we're looking at capital expenditure on the energy transition. And the issue that we have discovered, a very simple observation, is that 
um, people are comparing apples and pears. So what they're doing is they're looking at CapEx on the new stuff, which is growing, but they're not looking at CapEx on the old stuff, which is declining. And when you do it on a net basis and, and, and compare apples with apples, it turns out that actually the, the net increase in capital expenditure is dramatically lower than people think. Let me summarize in one sentence what I think the argument of your of your paper is. Here we go. Maintenance capex on fossil fuels with no learning rates is fundamentally different, inherently, intrinsically different from growth capex on renewables and clean energy technologies where capex drive learning curves that then lower cost risk and raise value have i that got it yeah well th th that's almost a that's even a more profound point that we're going to examine in more detail in a separate follow-up piece to this one but one of the points we're trying to make in this piece is precisely as you say markham that if you look just at capital expenditure you're missing the story and 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 in part it's because of the point you just made raised that the fossil fuel system is stagnant and therefore all capex by definition is at a system level at least um is maintenance um whilst the renewable capex is growth capex and therefore they're different types of capital expenditure there's also the 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 issue that the um the, the capital expenditure which is captured in the fossil fuel system of 1.1 trillion dollars a year on um uh, on um fossil fuel uh uh, uh, production is only about one eighth of the total amount of money that people spend on fossil fuels. So it's not the only game in town. And that's the other point we wanted to make that capital expenditure needs to be seen as, as just one of the costs, in fact, of the fossil fuel system. Let me raise, uh, I don't know if this is an objection or, uh, but I'll, I'll raise it. So what we've seen is over the last uh, 10 years, is and this it started in 2014 with the the big uh, collapse in prices that was caused by the Saudi, the Saudis basically opening the taps to drive down prices and drive the the U.S. shale producers out of the market. So 2014, 2015, part of 2016 had very low oil prices and 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 so a lot of companies had to uh, oil companies had to work hard at lowering their production costs. And part of what has happened in, in the pandemic accelerated this is that we're now producing more oil and gas with a lot less annual capex. I think it's down now on the upstream side, it's down globally to about from you know eight or 900 billion, maybe even a trillion down to about 400 billion. So you're producing a lot less oil and gas with, with a lot less capital and that essentially, I mean, is that not the same kind of productivity increase, the same learning uh, learning curve as what we see with uh, renewables and other clean energy technologies, where every time you double production of something like solar panels, then you have like a 20, 25% reduction in the cost. What's the difference between those two applications of capital? I think the most obvious difference is that the the fossil fuel capex is being spent to maintain the current system. There is no growth 
um, or almost no growth, 1% growth um, on, on a net basis, whilst the renewable capex is being used to, to double and triple um, the size of the renewable system. So w w one is maintenance, so the other is is for um, growth. But actually, your your point touches on a, 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 a another point, surely, which is that even though the amount of capex on fossil fuels is lower than it, it was in the past, the prices we're paying for the stuff um, are, are, are similar, or in fact, higher. And so, so the IE has got this great statistic that global annual spending on fuels, and, and I choose my words here very, very carefully, is, is $8.2 trillion. And um, global capex, as you say, on, on uh, upstream is about $500 billion, and global capex on, 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 on the fossil fuel system is only $1.1 trillion. So the, the point to me is that for us unfortunate consumers who have to spend the money um, we're spending considerably more to maintain the system. And, you know, where does the money go? Well, it goes to build the Burj Khalifa and all of these huge petrostate complexes in the Middle East and so on and so forth. So, you know, it, it's just very, very, uh, very different when we need to think harder about capital expenditure in the energy transition. Another point that you make in this report is the energy transition is actually cheaper, less expensive, more efficient, than business as usual. So the that is an incredibly cal difficult calculation, complex calculation. Two organizations have done it so far. Um, the International Energy Agency have done it and uh, a group at Oxford called Oxford INET at the Smith School have also done the calculation. And by chance, they both came up with the same conclusion, which is that the energy transition would require 12, uh, it was cheaper to the order of $12 trillion. Um, uh, 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 in, in fact, what we have, so, I mean, that's that, that, and, and this paper also, this analysis kind of contributes to that. Cause what we're saying here is that at the moment we're spending about the same on fossil fuels, um, as we are on, uh, re renewable energy production. So if you look at energy production, they're both spending about $1.1 trillion on each. What's going to happen over the course of the next, um, seven or eight years is that your, your renewable uh, capex is going to roughly double, depending which uh, forecast you take, and your fossil fuel capex is roughly going to halve. And and the point then is that uh, actually that kind of framework, this X shape framework, is something that we is very very familiar with other technology shifts, and which is not something we should be scared about. Right. So the X curve, what you're talking about, is the the uh, renewables capex rising. And the and the uh, fossil fuels capex declining and they intersect and and the curve forms a it forms is in the form of an X. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the various scenarios of the IEA because uh, I think you read my the death of King Oil uh, thread uh, and Great, and where I you know just as because I used a lot of the IEA work um, I. I explained the three uh, the three scenarios steps APS and and the net zero and my in my opinion uh, the steps is unlikely that's business as usual basically and that's not happening even if even if if policy uh, support for the energy transition disappeared tomorrow the the technology now is is on the uh, as past its inflection point and it is competitive and would be pushing fossil fuel fossil fuels out of the market regardless. 
Yeah, um, so a really good point. So steps, you're right. So steps is normative. And, and people used to laugh at, at a lot of analysis and say it's just normative. I'm not going to take it seriously. But actually, steps itself is now normative. And the APS, which has announced policies, uh, I think is the most likely. And and uh, and that shows uh, that, you know, fossil fuel demand uh, declining significantly between now and, and 2050. Uh, it's then, of course, you have the net zero, what we need to do to reach net zero by 2050, where the decline curves on <clears throat> on, on all fossil fuels are just that much steeper. So that yeah. you almost get to, you don't quite get to zero by 2050, but you get very close. And yeah. and my conclusion was that the net zero, given our trajectories, is unlikely, uh, but still possible. And probably my my take on this, and I'm not an economist, I didn't sit down and, and crunch the numbers, but I do interview a lot of people like you and read a lot of reports. So my in, in my intuitive sense here is that by 2050, we will wind up somewhere between the APS scenario and the net zero scenario. Is that think, kind of a reasonable take on it? So when, I come to the, when it comes to the question of capital expenditure over the um, cycle, fossil fuel capital expenditure has been falling um, continuously since 2015 by around 5% per annum, and now it's going to fall at around 6% per annum. So very, very similar. And then when it comes to renewable expenditure, uh, the growth of renewable expenditure in the future uh, is going to be very similar to the growth of renewable expenditure in the past. And on a net basis, we kind of we have been uh, growing at 1% per annum and we're going to grow at 2% per annum. So the point simply is that a, um, a the, the 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 continuity scenario is actually the APS scenario when you look to look at capital expenditure and and uh, so basically I mean the reason you call this report the great reallocation is because we don't have a shortage of capital there's capital that's been applied to or has been spent on in the fossil fuels industry that as it declines, then will be reallocated into the renewable sector. And what is the, how can we be certain that that's where that capital will be reallocated and there will be enough capital available to fuel the growth in clean energy technologies? So I think it sometimes pays to stand back for a moment. Global capital allocation, according to the World Bank, is $27 trillion a year. And we're spending on energy production, we're spending from our numbers 2.2 trillion, um, 50, roughly half on, on fossils and half on renewables. So it's less than 10% of global uh, uh, capital allocation. And in, in the APS scenario, we're going to go from 2.2 to $2.5 trillion um, by uh, 2030. So th that increase of th about $300 billion is very, very small in the context of, of global capital allocation. It's very small in terms of the um, of the growth we've seen in the past. So it's absolutely doable on a net basis. Um, the, 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 the issue that people have been concerned about is that within that, the piece which is, is clean is going from about 1.1 trillion um, to, to about 1.8 trillion. And, and, and they're thinking that's a lot of growth, but actually, um, because fossils is going at the same time in the APS scenario, at least from uh, uh, about 1.1 to about 0 0.6, 0 0.7, uh, 
uh, as you can see, just automatically there is freedom for that money to be liberated and, and reallocated into renewables. And sorry, again, without being too technical, the fossil fuel system is now paying out very high levels of um of, uh, of of dividends and cash flow and repaying a lot of the capital back to investors and investors will then do what they do best they reallocate from um dying uh, industries into growth industries and that's kind of what capitalism is all about okay so we're going to uh, depend on the the marketplace and uh, in traditional investor behavior uh to to basically fund the capital that's going to be required to grow the clean energy sector. Uh, what happens if that capital goes somewhere else? What if it goes into tech platforms or biotechnology or or something else? And 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 there isn't the amount of capital required. I mean, is this a place where policy makers have to step in? Yeah, I, th I think. Um... The main reason why capital will be allocated to these sectors is because they're relatively profitable. Um, and once you have economics on your side, it's it's much easier clearly to uh, attract capital. So I think the, you know the first point is actually the sums involved uh, in the context of capital allocation and the system actually not that great. And and then the second one is well, um, because the economics makes sense, money will tend to to flow. Now you know that's not to say for a second that you don't need governments to continue to step up to the plate and and put into place the right conditions. And in fact, the, the latest IEA renewables report for 2023 uh, just came out this morning, um, makes the point that 87% of um, renewable capex does require a government policy of some sort or another in order for it to, um, uh, uh, to, to happen. So yeah, I think that the other point we we're making in this piece is to say, um, Stop talking of stop. People shouldn't worry too much about the the quantum of capital. They should be focusing on other points. One of those points is that we need to shift capital from developed markets to emerging markets. Another point is that we need to shift capital from uh, generation into grids. And again, in grids, governments get more involved. Yeah, let's deal with those two points separately. Um, the the shifting capital to from the global north to the global south, or maybe the better way to think about it is is just the the allocation of capital to the global south. It becomes a big issue going forward, and this is key to the debate between I, the, the IEA and OPEC, because OPEC uh, has about has three or four what I think are faulty assumptions, and one of them is it says very clearly. Uh, actually, there's a, there's a couple of them. It says governments are tiring of getting tired of funding um, energy transition policies. Support is softening, and they're going to they're going to change. They're going to reduce the amount of policy support for it. And the other is that emerging economies, Africa, parts of Asia, India, uh, they are they can't afford renewables and EVs and so on. And so they're going to stick with the with the status quo with fossil fuels. And and they the, the third the third and the, this is by far the biggest is OPEC has simply flat out missed China. I mean <laughs> we we found you know a couple of weeks ago Sinopec came out and said that uh Chinese oil demand was going to uh peak in as early as 2026, as late as 2030, 
And OPEC's uh, uh, modeling has Chinese oil demand growing by 4 million barrels a day out to 2045. I mean, they've completely and utterly missed the importance of China. And it's a, it's a major flaw uh, in, their, in their modeling. <clears throat> so OPEC says that the global South will not have adequate capital, isn't interested in the CapEx uh, for renewables and for clean energy technologies. What's what's your response to to that argument? Well, I think the answer to this one is that the global South uh, can't afford renewables and um, electric vehicles at 2020 prices. But we're in 2024, folks. Wake up! And the prices are now considerably cheaper for. Uh, renewables and and increasingly getting cheaper for electric vehicles so that the global south will do what they um are, are perfectly sensible to do they'll just pick whatever the cheapest technology is whatever it is at the time and and right now if i take the data from the this latest report from the iea 96 percent of solar and wind going in globally 96 percent is cheaper than the fossil fuel alternative today furthermore they say that across the global south um, because the penetration of solar wind is still very low, it has very little impact on the electricity system. So it's an absolute no-brainer in almost every single country in the global south to deploy renewables now at scale. It's cheaper. You don't have to import um, the fossil fuels at elevated prices from petrostates every single year. You just get your own wind and your own sunshine. And then when it comes to um, electric vehicles, I don't know, again... Um, uh, OPEC needs to get out more, as Fatty says. Uh, Fatty Burrell <laughs> says the IEA. That get was out a great more. line, by the way. That was a, a great line. It was a great line. You know, the, the, take a look at what's happening at the moment uh, in Thailand, for example. Um, so Thailand is embracing electric vehicles. Um, Taiwan, well, not not the Taiwan necessarily part of the global south, but so let's stick with Thai, Thailand. Thailand's embracing electric vehicles, um, and the Chinese are getting a toehold in the in in the in the market in Thailand and pushing out the foreign competition because they're selling cheaper, better electric vehicles. So it, this is not just a global North issue. Here's a, I want to get your opinion on this because uh, this is part of my argument about why OPEC is so wrong. Uh, China has overbuilt its solar panel industry by a factor of three. I think it's 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 it can turn out a, a trillion dollars worth of solar panels a year now, and it's operating at something like thirty eight percent. And the Chinese are, you know, they they see what Europe and and the U.S. are doing in terms of trying to build their own clean energy tech uh, industrial clusters, and so you know, solar panels and other solar related technologies are part of that, and so China. If I was sitting in the, in their shoes, I would say, well, okay, well, where are the other markets? What other markets can I get into? Well, Africa and India and 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 all the ones we just pre you know in the global south. A, I can produce a solar panel at twelve cents a watt, whereas Europe is twenty two cents and and the U.S. is forty cents. So I'm I'm the low cost alternative already amongst all the competition. So I want to get into Africa, and then I have the Belt and Road Initiative. Which you know they spend about a hundred billion dollars a year lending money and building pro you know infra energy infrastructure projects outside of China, and and they've now 
in just a few years, they've they've switched from funding fossil fuel infrastructure, 70% of it is renewables, and that's going up. So it seems to me that given the fact that China is now the 800-pound gorilla in the global energy system, uh, they are the ones that can drive the, the capex in the global south, and they can do it at the lowest possible cost. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what's what's now happening. Vietnam is a good example, um, but, but you see this, uh, you, you're, shall I say, starting to see this everywhere. Um, there is this competition now between China, should we say, in the West, and um, for, for, for hearts and minds and energy systems in the global south. And China, quite frankly, at the moment, has got a superior offering. Um, so they, they people will use it, and why wouldn't they? I, I want to come back, if I may, for a moment to this point about uh, capex. So in the APS, in emerging markets, or sort of global south, as as, as you call it, um, capex on uh, uh, primary energy, sorry, capex on energy production in 2022, according to the IEA stats, is basically $600 billion. That's where we stand today. And it needs to get up to about 900. So let us be under no illusions. That's not easy, but nor is it a, an impossible ask. It's not a 10x increase. We need some additional capital into countries which have got massive renewable resources and cheaper solutions. So it, it's not easy. And, and actually, I think the key point that we want to make, and the, again, the IEA actually made this in their, in their recent piece, is that you really do need governments to step up to the plate and change regulatory structures. It's not just a question of throwing free money at people. You've got to put into place the right regulatory structures, get some support um, from, from other countries with both capex and technology, and then deploy it. But it's, it's a combination, and it's not just a, th a question of capital. Yeah, I hear that over and over again when I'm talking when I'm interviewing experts. Is the, the policy and regulatory framework uh, is absolutely critical to progress on on the energy transition. And of course, you know, in places where oil and gas incumbents are very strong, one of the first things they do is mess with that with that process by you know capturing policymakers. And, and the policy process. Uh, we've seen that in, in uh, Canada uh, over and over again. And you see it to, to a large extent in, in the US as well. Um, so let's talk about the grids and the shift from generation to grids. And in, I mentioned earlier, I was, I'm preparing a thread on, on renewable uh, energy, which, which you know, tries to explain the basics and which your work will, will now inform. Uh, but one of the points I wanted to explain to, to readers in that thread is the extent to which and the methods by which renewables can be integrated into grids. Yep. Because the IEA has a, a great um, uh, slide deck on this and the uh, National uh, Renewables uh, Renewable Energy Laboratory in the US uh, has done a lot of work on it as well. And they make the point that, you know, at there's six phases, with one being uh, very low penetrations of renewables and six being very, very high uh, penetrations. But most companies are, you know, countries are in the phase one or two. And at phase one or two, you can integrate uh, variable renewables or inverter-based resources, as they call them, uh, quite easily. It's yeah. not, it's not yeah. hard. And the technology and the... Uh, the technology and the, the the regulatory requirements and the market design, which is very important, um, is improving so quickly that 
the in being able to integrate higher percentages, maybe maybe instead of five to ten percent, now you're getting into 20, 30 percent, or maybe even 40 to 50 percent becomes easier and easier all the time. And yeah, that's true. And, and 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 that as you say, those barriers, those, those levels, the one to six, the IEA, in fact, they set the, that framework up about four or five years ago, to, as I recall. I don't think they've adjusted the numbers up since they probably would need to. Um, because precisely as you say, as the leaders solve the problems, so the um, the ceilings of each of those levels uh, increase because it just gets easier. And of course, cheaper batteries now is is what everyone's talking about. Everyone's putting in solar plus storage. Um, and, and that kind of means that a lot of the standard responses, standard concerns that people were worried about are, are no longer valid. Yes, indeed. And so, but what is your, well, maybe uh, before I get to that question, um, I wanted to ask you your opinion on microgrids, because this is a point the IEA makes, uh, is that microgrids, especially in emerging economies, are a great alternative uh, to, you know, what are very often creaky and inadequate national grids. And and the you know it, it the costs are falling all the time. They're 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 much more reasonable. And microgrids provide uh, resilience and reliability improvements, uh, and can uh, uh, can help to insulate uh, industry, for example, from you know problems with with older grids. So what? But we're not we're not using microgrids to anywhere near the extent that they could be used. And I'm particularly interested in your view of if microgrids will play a big role in the emerging economies. Well, I think, so, so as you know, you have the terrible situation where nearly 1,000 million people at present um, lack access to any electricity. Um, and from 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 the numbers, again, I've done the calculation, 90% of the solution to get energy to these, uh, electricity to these folks who lack it um, it's because they're very often in widely dispersed locations. And the way to do it, therefore, is to have a combination of microgrids, um, home solar, um, uh, uh, and, and, and other renewable type solutions, which actually make up 90% of the solution. Um, for, 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 for the last time I looked at detail, 880 million people uh, lacking electricity. So, yes. Um, undoubtedly microgrids and, and, and other um, distributed renewable solutions will provide solutions that fossil fuels simply couldn't do um, to this to this group of folk. And, and I think we should all applaud that. And, and really here, there is, there, I, there is, I believe, very little dispute. Okay. Um, you use the uh, auto industry uh, to, ex to illustrate the difference between uh, CapEx and fossil fuels and CapEx and clean energy technologies. Maybe you could explain that. Sure. So what we did in this piece is we we, we made the observation that um, the uh, the IEA and others were counting um, only only um, renewable CapEx and they were only counting one part of fossil fuel CapEx, which is CapEx on um, uh, building up um, uh, energy production. But they weren't counting um, the CapEx uh, capital expenditure on fossil fuel using assets, which in English means cars. So basically, they'd be counting the electric vehicle costs, but not the cost of uh, conventional internal combustion engine cars. And we 
made the very simple, and, and what then people do, I mean, some folks do try and do that and they make these very, very difficult uh, calculations, complex calculations, of what may or may not happen to the relative cost of electric vehicles and ICE in 20 years time. And we just, we said, we wanted to make a very simple um, uh, observation. We said, look, let's just, we don't know. Every subsector is different. Steel is different to cars, is different to cement. Um, we don't know. So let's, in the very first instance, split end use capex from um, uh, energy production capex. And let's just look at energy production capex because there we've got proper numbers. We can do apple to apples comparison. And then we said, look, and sorry, I'll come on to your answer your question specifically with cars. Actually, in the car sector, price parity is approaching between electric vehicles and, and ICE cars. So actually, in the car sector, we can make it the simplifying assumption that it's just a question of um, also reallocation. What what you're doing you know, next time, Markham, you go and update your um, your your car. You're up. You're, you're making a reallocation from an ICE car that you would have bought in the past to an electric vehicle um, that you're intending to buy now. And and that actually is not new capital expenditure. It's just a, a replacement of one cape capex with another piece of capex. And we made the simplifying assumption that you should only focus when you're looking at this debate at um, energy production capex. Fair enough. Um, the next uh, question I have for you, Kingsmill, is about uh, timing, because I think people are going to be shocked when they get we get to 2030 and they look back on what's happened over the disruptive decade in the energy transition that is the 2020s. Uh, they're going to be shocked at how much has changed. And the, your your uh, analysis uh, kind of reflects that. Rapid change is here, and it's only going to accelerate. Exactly. And I'm, as you know, Malcolm, this is something we have been saying for a while. And and if you look, for example, at um, new capital expenditure on um, renewable, sorry, on electricity generation of any sort, we're already basically globally at 90 or 95 from renewables, 95% renewables. So you know, it's indisputable that in that particular segment, um, this this is the disruptive decade and the disruption has already happened. Um, what we were saying in this particular piece is when we look at capital expenditure on um, uh, renewables themselves, because it, you basically go up the S-curve this decade and after 2030, your increase in capex is actually very limited because after 2030, you move from going up the S-curve to simply rolling it out. Um, so if I put it in car terms, if, if you're selling today, um, uh, whatever it is, 14 million electric vehicles, and you, you're you're aiming for a, a a sort of end level of 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 70 to 80, by the end of this decade, you'll be quite close to that level, and, and after that, you just have to roll it out. You don't have to grow it very much anymore. And I, I think that was the point we we were trying to make: this that this is the disruptive decade, and people shouldn't worry too much about. Um, a, a massive surge in capex in in succeeding decades, and in fact, we specifically looked at Rystad and IEA data, and both of them, um, in the case of Rystad, for example, they've got falling capex on uh, the energy uh, production system as a whole after twenty thirty, and and falling capex on solar wind because um, you you have less volume growth and and uh, and efficiency gains still coming through, and the IEA has basically got a um, a, a flat growth after twenty. Uh, 30 as well, the 20, 2040, 2050 decade, very, very limited growth. So the point simply is, again, we need to focus on here and now, this decade, and the winners will emerge this decade. Well, Kingsmill, um, 
at the beginning of the interview, I promised that we would, our listeners, that we would have a conversation <laughs> outside the norm that we'd be talking about. And I, I think you've you've done that. You've you've uh, made a very good case for uh, for your argument uh, that uh, the capex fossil fuel capex is different than clean energy uh, capex. And the, the the reallocation is already underway, and that's only going to drive change faster and faster and faster. So in your last comment, if you could just kind of wrap up the the argument and where you see things going in the you know the next few years, what what should listeners be looking for? I think listeners should be looking for a deeper understanding of total costs of system a versus system b so system a would be continuity of the fossil system system b is um a a shift to a, a new renewable power system and understand holistically um the relative costs of the two options and and indeed that's what we should be um doing more work on to understand and simplify and um and, and seek to draw out some some interesting answers well, Kingsmill, a pleasure as always, my friend, and uh, good to good to talk to you. And we will, as you keep rolling out these reports, we'll we'll have you back for more interviews. Brilliant! Thank, thank you very much, Michael.